Welcome, everybody, to the Moose Room OG3 back here this week. And of course, we have another guest for our May Mental Health Awareness Month series. Super, super excited about the guest we have today. Uh, she is a colleague of ours in Extension and somebody that I have gotten to work with really, really closely these past couple of years on this really, I think it's cool and exciting uh, project. And that's what we're going to be talking more about today. But first, I just want to say welcome to Jennifer McGuire. Thank you. It's good to be here. Yes, we're really excited to have you. And I'll just say briefly, uh, so Jennifer is a professor in the Department of Family Social Science at the university, and she is an extension specialist with our Center for Family Development. So we're kind of uh, crossing over the lines a little bit, as it were, and we're going to talk a little bit about topics that that mix together both agriculture and family social science. And you might be thinking, is there such a thing? And I'm here to tell you, yes, there is. Before we get into that, I, I did give Jennifer a little warning beforehand that we have our super secret questions we ask all of our guests. So, and, and I'm going to say answer to the best of your ability. Jennifer will claim she doesn't know anything about agriculture, which is a lie. She, she does know some things, enough to be dangerous, I would say has had exposure to other agriculture, spent some time in Washington state. So she talks a lot about lentils, <laughs> but this is not a question about lentils. What I want to know, Jennifer, what is your favorite breed of dairy cattle? And if you don't know a name of a breed, you can describe it and we'll help you. <laughs> I know one cattle breed name. It's okay. Holstein. What is it? Holstein, Holstein right? Oh, that yep. That's, that's the black and white dairy cow. Are you going to say that's your favorite? It's my only known. So yes, it's my favorite. Ah, yay. <laughs> well, that is terrible news. Um, <laughs> terrible news for Joe because he's on Team Jersey. Yes. Uh, oh, Jersey. Running. Yes, Jersey's. Would you like to change your answer? Oh. Oh. <laughs> um, running down the totals, that puts Holstein's pretty far out there at 17. Jersey's at 11. Brown Swiss at 5. Montbelliard at 3. Dutch belted at two, Normandy at two, milking shorthorn at one, and one Guernsey named Taffy. <laughs> oh, Taffy. <laughs> now, Jennifer, the next question is, what is your favorite breed of beef cattle? So if you don't know the names again, you can describe them. <laughs> so like you should play the Jeopardy music. Yeah. <laughs> names or what a beef cattle. Red and, white's a Red and white is a popular color. Oh, quiet, Bradley. <laughs> Yeah, I don't know any beef cattle breeds, unless Holstein is also beef cattle. They go into the beef market. They certainly do. They do. <laughs> every every dairy cow has a second career. We'll skip that one. I'm, we're not gonna mm -hmm. we're not gonna mess with the total. And I'm not adding. <laughs> not adding. Choices? You're not adding Holstein. Some beef people might get mad at us if we add Holstein to the beef list. Yeah, we might. But will you run over the beef list for me so I can be educated? sure? Sure. So. <laughs> Totals, Black Angus at 11, Hereford at 8, Black Baldy at 4, Belted Galloway at 2, Scottish Highlander at 2, Red Angus at 2, and then all with one. Stabilizer, Galvi, Brahmin, Kianina, Charlay, Simulton, Nalore, Jersey, Normandy, and Shorthorn. Excellent. Okay. 
So Jennifer, we'll have to get you like a book of cattle breeds. So you can I do really like Scottish Highland cows, but I did not know they were beef cows. I would accept accept that if you like Scottish Highlanders, I'll accept it as the answer. That's my favorite kind of, yeah. There it is. All right. So that puts them at three, just behind Black Baldies and ahead of Belted Galloways. Now that we've gotten through all the the fun and games, we can get down to business here. You know, again, I kind of said at the beginning, we're talking on, on topics, well, all this month, right? When we talk about mental health, this is not just an agriculture issue. We know that it's, it's an everybody issue. And, and, you know, at the University of Minnesota, we're really lucky in that we have a really awesome family social science department and that we in extension are able to do a lot of work with those family development folks um, in order to, you know, best serve farmers, because we know that all farmers are a part of a family as well. We really like to look at some of these topics from a family system also. And so Jennifer and I got started uh, a couple of years ago working on ambiguous loss in agriculture. I think to start, I'll have Jennifer give her best attempt at a 30 second description of ambiguous loss. It's tricky, right? It has ambiguous in the name. So we're not expecting you to listen to this podcast and be an ambiguous loss expert. I've been doing this for two and a half years and I'm still learning. So, so Jennifer, briefly, what is ambiguous loss? So ambiguous loss is a theoretical perspective that was developed by one of the faculty who is now an emeritus faculty in family social science. So it's been around for a while. And the gist of the perspective is that you think about loss as both physical and psychological. So someone might be physically missing, like missing in action at war, but they're still psychologically a member of your family. You're still thinking about them all the time. Or someone might be physically with you, but they have Alzheimer's or they're using substances or they're always preoccupied thinking about the farm. So they're psychologically kind of away and that ruptures the relationship. And when you can consider loss in that way, it opens the door for thinking about resilience and ways to deal with those losses in a different way than traditional models of grieving a loss. Yeah, and I think that that's so important when Jennifer and I do trainings on this, we talk about grief and a lot of people think about, you know, there's the five stages of grief and it's kind of viewed as like this cycle, this process you go through and you're done. Um, and, and with ambiguous loss, kind of in my mind, a unique marker of that is that you're not always going to have that really clean cut, clear, this is what the loss is. So I know exactly what I'm grieving. And, and a really good example, I think that has helped me explain it to a lot of people is because we all experienced ambiguous loss, whether we know it or not. COVID-19, when that first really hit in, in early 2020, we were seeing a lot of ambiguous loss in that, um, you know, our school age children, they lost uh, a lot of experiences, a lot of, you know, different social things some of these rites of passage we see like prom or graduation ceremony. And those types of things are ambiguous losses. And, you know, quite simply is ambiguous loss is a loss without clarity, right? So we don't really know exactly every detail or we can list out perfectly, this is what we've lost. And again, like Jennifer said, there's a disagreement like in a true loss, right? It's physical and psychological, like Jennifer said. 
But in this case, this is one and not the other. Um, so that's what we're looking at. And that's where it gets kind of tricky. Jennifer, could you talk a little bit about loss and, and grief and more how we see grief in ambiguous loss? Because I think this is really important where a lot of us are grieving without realizing it because it's due to something that's less clear. A clear loss is something that's acknowledged. And so you have things like a death certificate and a funeral or even, you know, a change of location or something that marks the loss that you're leaving or changing. And then it can be acknowledged by outsiders. And so we have some standards in place and some mechanisms in our culture for handling that kind of grief. An unclear loss is typically not well acknowledged or people don't speak about it. So for instance, in the with COVID-19, there, there were, like you said, a lot of ambiguous losses. And, and part of it was uh, this constant uh, trying to manage it this way and trying to manage it that way and trying to find the way to management and never really knowing when is this going to end? Is it going to end? Is this our new normal? And that's an ambiguous loss because we can't really mark what we've lost when we don't know how much more we're going to lose. And so we're all in a suspended animation. We won't really be able to define this until years after it's over. Yeah, you know, Jennifer, that's a really good point. And I think what you just said really encapsulates how this relates to farming when you said, you know, you don't know how much more you're, you're going to lose. Mm -hmm. And I would imagine that as soon as you said that, a lot of our listeners were like, oh, yeah, I think that that's a really common feeling in farming. And I think farmers are always prepared for loss or always expect some sort of loss of something or maybe to make it even broader. You know, they expect something bad to happen, something to go wrong. With that, you know, there's this anticipation that something is going to go wrong. And we talk a lot about anticipatory grief and how if you think this is going to happen or fear it may happen, you start to grieve it even while you still have it. And, and that, I think, is something that we see a lot in farming. I know this isn't cattle related, but it's something we're seeing a lot right now with highly pathogenic avian influenza. Uh, with our poultry producers is, again, this this kind of anticipatory stress, yes, but also grief in that you've kind of told yourself, all right, I'm probably going to lose this. And so you start to kind of move into that grieving. Right. So I feel like you fully explained anticipatory grief right there. Um, that's the kind of grief that you have when you're expecting to lose something or waiting to lose something. And even if you end up not losing it, you already had that grief. You already had the grief of anticipation. And that's a type of grief that is um, often not acknowledged is the, is the waiting, right? The waiting is the hardest part and that you're, you're grieving something before you've lost it. And even if you end up not losing it, you still had that waiting period and that grief. And that's, that's one a classic example of a type of grief that tends to be under-acknowledged. Another is a disenfranchised grief. So a disenfranchised grief is the kind of grief that people... Um, may not count, right? They say, well, that doesn't matter because of this or because of that. For instance, if you're grieving something, but maybe uh, out of status, or it's not something that other people acknowledge, then you don't get the markers that other people might get for grieving. Like you don't get the, the public funeral or the public acknowledgement or the, any of the kind of the warm wishes from, from friends and colleagues that you might get if you had a, a non-disenfranchised grief, a grief that people acknowledge. 
And even like if your favorite pet cow dies, right? And other, other farmers might think like it was just a cow, right? But if it was a little more special to you, you're going to be sad, right? And yeah, that grief may be disenfranchised and other people won't recognize it. And that might seem like a silly or a trivial example, but I mean, it's real. It happens. You know, right. we, we've seen it. The loss of animals is a really good example of disenfranchised grief because sometimes it can be um, considered in more of a spreadsheet way, like that it's a financial loss or that you've lost something in your business. But for people who raise and manage animals for a living, the, their bond to the animals is quite significant. And so losing animals is not only the loss of the relationship to the animals, but the loss of the sense of self of as someone who, who raises animals, right? So if you sell your dairy cattle, then all of a sudden you have to think, am I really a dairy farmer anymore if I don't have cattle? And so that's a form of grief that can get disenfranchised. Yes. And then there is one grief that we like to talk about uh, with ambiguous loss, and I think is also really applicable to agriculture, and that is frozen grief. Um, and I'm actually, Jennifer, I'm going to let you explain that one because you explained it a lot better than I do. <laughs> frozen grief is, um, it's the result of ambiguity and when you don't know whether or not an effort is going to be successful. So um, it can go on for years while you're making various efforts to try and salvage certain aspects of your business or your land or livestock. The uncertainty of the future, it doesn't allow any member of the family or the business to fully grieve and move on because you're always thinking, well, I'll try this and we'll see if it works. And then I'll try this and we'll see if it works. And for some families and farms, that can go on for years and years and years. Um, and each year you don't know, is this going to be successful or not? And you can't let go of anything until you know whether or not something's going to work. And I think COVID has been a really good example of frozen grief because um, obviously there's a lot of clear grief, right? When people die, but there's a lot of frozen grief of we're going to try this. We're going to, you know, make this adjustment. We're going to try this policy. We're going to try this vaccination. We're going to try all these different things. And, and each of them have some impact, but none of them, none of them has just pulled us out of this pandemic, right? None of them has ended the pandemic. And so we're frozen in our sense of what's been lost. Yeah, great, great example or explanation, I should say. And I, I kind of think of it as like sometimes if you're in those situations and we know that farms unfortunately end up in them kind of the prolonging the inevitable, like Jennifer was saying. So, so you're trying a few different things, whether, you know, it's to save the farm or save a certain enterprise of your farm. I almost think of it, and Jennifer, you can argue me on this if you think I'm wrong, um, right? It's kind of like a defense mechanism almost. Like sometimes I wonder if we lead ourselves to freeze our grief just because we're afraid or because we are hoping that things will end up differently. And so we don't want to, you know, be more on that anticipatory side where we're like, yep, this is over. I'm going to start grieving it now because I think I see where this is going, writings on the wall, et cetera. That's what I think on that. Like I said, don't know if that's right necessarily, but I can't speculate as to why, but I can say that the longer people keep trying to make something work, the longer that frozen grief is going to go on. Joe and Bradley, you've been a little quiet before we move into what can we do about this? Do you guys have any question about questions about ambiguous loss? I don't, but I say I've learned a lot. I'll tell you that I, this is not... <laughs> You know, I'm an animal scientist is definitely not my uh, specialty, but uh, I think it's always good to learn about these issues that you might not be aware about. So good. 
I've learned a lot as well. I mean, I, I think the question that comes to my mind a lot, and when we talk about grief or loss in any way, a lot of times what we think about is, or, or the word that comes to my mind is closure. And I don't know where that word fits in this whole discussion, or if that's <laughs> it doesn't. That, it doesn't. And, that's and maybe the that's issue. the point. Maybe that's there's the no point. closure. So yes, uh, yes, I think that's that's the word that comes to my mind uh, uh, with this is loss without closure, and maybe even especially in the way you guys are talking about things, loss without any possibility of true what the person might consider closure. Is that a fair statement or? It's a fair statement, although I would say that sometimes there is eventually closure. There may be, it may feel like there's no possibility of closure and loss without closure is actually how Pauline Boss has described ambiguous loss many, many times. Sometimes closure can come, like for example, if someone is missing and you know 10 or 20 or 30 years goes by and that person is still missing, there's never closure. And then sometimes there's closure 30 years later. And so that it, there can be closure. It doesn't take away the 30 years of ambiguity that were in between. Yeah, I think that's a really important point in that if you get to that point of closure or if you get to that point where, you know, the ambiguity kind of clears up, that doesn't negate the the time you have spent with those feelings. Just like we were saying with the grief, you know, anticipatory grief. If the thing you're anticipating doesn't actually happen, that doesn't cancel out the grief that you felt, right? That was still a really you know, valid experience that, that you went through. So the, the situation that I, I think of a lot, and I think it, almost everyone's experienced it, right, is someone who is important to you, maybe in periods of your life where you've maybe drifted apart a little bit and or you don't communicate as often as you used to. And then that person's gone. They die for whatever reason um, and they're gone. And you feel like, Does that fit into this ambiguous loss type of situation where you're like, well, I never got to talk to them one more time. I had no idea this was coming. Now there's no chance of talking to them one last time. And and all of a sudden you don't know what you, what you're dealing with. Is that, is that a situation that fits into this category? Well, so typically a death is considered a clear loss because you, someone is then psychologically not with you anymore. And they're also physically not with you anymore. That time period when you were separate from them is certainly an unclear loss and a loss with no closure. Um, So I think the same kinds of resiliency strategies would be useful for that kind of loss. I'll refrain from getting into like, is that ambiguous loss or not? Just because I think that's not really um, necessarily from my perspective, as helpful as thinking about the same kinds of resiliency strategies that help us move forward in in unclear losses would help with that kind of a loss too, like that loss of the relationship before the death. That makes a lot more sense. Right. Thank you for clarifying. Right. Yeah. So, so yes, we brought this theory into farming and how it impacts farm families. And, you know, the biggest question Jennifer and I get is, oh, okay, yeah, ambiguous loss. All right, you get it as much as you can get it. You know, it has ambiguous loss, ambiguous in the name. But the real question we get is like, well, what can I do about it? How do I stop it or get rid of it or cure it? And first thing we say is it's not necessarily about a cure or, or treating it or making it go away. Really what we 
want to help farm families learn is how they can help build more resilience that will, you know, as we know, resilience helps us in times of adversity, change, all of those things. And so resilience can also help people get through their ambiguous losses. And although you may not get that ultimate closure and clarity, I do think that some of the resilience strategies we recommend do help provide a little bit more of that clarity or, you know, in my mind, I would say like having a little more peace with, with what has happened. Lots of different things with resilience. Um, and before we really dive into that, you know, we just talk about how before you can even start with these resilience steps, you need to be ready to shift gears and to do something different. Um, you know, that that is like number one most important. And also with that, we remind people that so we're really used to something called first order change, which means when something isn't going well, we work harder. And, and you know, <laughs> Bradley and Joe nod. And, heads, yes. <laughs> and I, you know, the best example I can think of this in a farming context. So we should have started with this. So Jennifer and I wrote a book about this. That's why we're <laughs> discussing it. Um, and we'll talk a little bit more about the book at the end now, I guess. But when we were writing this book, we met with some farm families in Minnesota that have dealt with some ambiguous losses. And one of the farms we met with was a dairy farm. And they were telling us about a time when they had stray voltage. And this was several, several years ago before stray voltage was really a thing we knew much about or a thing that people talked about. And basically, I just remember this farmer, we're sitting at his kitchen table and he's telling us like, our production was going down, losing money. We were losing cows, you know, cows were dying. We didn't know what was going on. So we were just working harder, right? So they were putting in more hours. So everybody was tired and miserable. Nothing was getting better. So that's that again, that, that idea that this will get better if I simply work harder, work longer, do more. That's first order change. Second order change is really a shift in gears. So then, you know, in, in the stray voltage example, that was, okay, we're working harder and harder and harder, and that's not changing anything. So now we need, we need to do something different. Um, and I believe, you know, they, they talked to some people, did some research, found out a little bit more about stray voltage, and then were able to really dive into that and discover that that was in fact the problem. So no amount of hard work was going to make the stray voltage go away until, you know, they had the utility or whomever come in to, to do some grounding and, and what have you. They had to learn to deal with not only the fact that, that they couldn't work their way out of this, but that they had a lot of convincing of the local community to do about how to deal with stray voltage because it wasn't something that was well known. And so this person who had been a multi-generational dairy farmer was all of a sudden you know, the bank didn't want to give them another loan. People were questioning their capacity as a farmer. And, and really when they started to understand it was stray voltage, then people still didn't believe that. And so they had to do a lot of education around what is stray voltage and how is it affecting things. And so it was just a very different approach than getting up earlier or making new feed or doing, you know, all the kinds of ways that you might work harder. That's hitting a little close to home for me, at least probably Brad as well with the way he was nodding his head. I, I feel like 
that's that's a very maybe it's everyone's response maybe it's a minnesotan response maybe it's just farmers just the response of just working harder seems to be fairly common looking back now just thinking about it i saw it a ton in practice what's the solution to to any of the problems is you know work harder because it does help with a lot of problems but not necessarily all of them and i always go back to the the metaphor of running around and putting out fires um which you can work harder and harder and harder but if you don't stop the source of the fires being started to begin with then you're not making much progress so that that's how i felt in some cases in practice of just running and ragged but not actually getting to the root cause and then you're just working harder with no benefit it's a great example of shifting gears yeah absolutely we really get to the shifting gears piece and thinking about taking a different perspective, looking at your situation through a different set of eyes. And as we're doing this and thinking about identity and all these other pieces, you know, like I said, we really bring people to resilience. You know, resilience is a word we hear a lot. We kind of know what it means. But the real question is, how do we build resilience? You know, what what can we do to to make ourselves more resilient? Right. Like that seems you know, sometimes to me, it just seems like a totally lost idea, right? But we do have some ways that we can build resilience and so many different things. And I think a lot of things that I know for me, when we were first doing this work, things I would have never thought of, like, oh yeah, that's, I could see where that really helps and can kind of help in, you know, I don't like to say getting over it, but again, kind of finding peace with your situation is, is how I think of it. So Jennifer, maybe you want to talk about, you know, maybe just a couple of, of the main resilience building pieces that, that we like to discuss. Right. So the core elements in resilience for ambiguous loss are not about fixing the problem, but about recognizing that you can't fix the problem and learning to live with the unfixed problem. So for instance, in the stray voltage, um, a lot of things were lost in that time. There was money lost, there were cows' lives lost, there were relationships lost. And fixing the stray voltage is one strategy that helps fix the business side of the problem, but it doesn't fix the, the unrepaired relationships that were injured during, during the time when this farmer you know, questioned, am I still a good farmer? And so the goal for resilience with ambiguous loss is to recognize that it's a loss that you might live with forever and to develop some skills around coping with having that kind of of an unclear loss permanently. Um, so for instance, you might find some meaning, um, and this is a big one I thought about, like when you were talking about your friend, um, Joe, who was somebody you lost touch with and then they died, is finding some meaning in that time when you weren't connected. Like, what does that mean? What does that mean for you as a person about losing relationships? What does that mean, you know, in, in any kind of greater scheme of things to have someone die when you're out of contact with them? And then what does that mean for you moving forward in terms of being in contact or out of contact with relationships and, and where you place relationships in your value structure? So that's that's a mechanism of finding meaning in, in um, something that's a loss, right? That where you what you lost was the chance to close up a relationship. So finding meaning is a big one. I'll just name off the others and then I'll go into some details about them. So adjusting mastery, reconstructing identity, normalizing ambivalence, revising attachment and discovering hope. Adjusting mastery is just changing your sense of what you're capable of doing. Sometimes people are raised to think they can do anything if they just work hard enough or try hard enough or study enough and recognizing that you may not be able to do everything you thought you could previously do 
and uh, you might have to adjust and recognize that the world is not always fair. So this one was originally called tempering mastery, like pulling down your sense of mastery. But through Pauline's work over, over many decades, she realized that some people actually needed to recognize what they could do that they didn't think they could do. So that's why it's called adjusting mastery. Some ways to accomplish this, to adjust your sense of mastery are to um, just recognize that the world is not always a fair place. And even if you did everything you could do, this loss could still happen. We like to think that and I'm sure that it's true in agriculture as well, that people like to think if they do everything right and if they are careful at managing their money and they work really hard, then they should be successful. And there are a lot of things that are outside the control of, of everyone. And it's not always fair what's outside the control of everyone, right? And so recognizing that unfair things can happen to very fair people and letting go of your sense that you should have been able to handle it differently is, is a big one. With adjusting mastery, I, I have a little story I, I like to tell related to this, because I think, too, with adjusting mastery, especially when we're talking in a farming context, especially when we have maybe somebody who is no longer farming or like in my family's example, you know, my dad no longer dairy farms. Right. But he was still uh, an able bodied person of sound mind wanting to do something but milking cows was not going to be what he did anymore. And so something that my dad has gotten really into is uh, tapping the maple trees in our cow pasture. And now he makes syrup every year. You know, for me, that's such an amazing example of resilience and more specifically this, this mastery piece in, in adjusting it to here's something he can still do that allows him to be outside, which was always important to him. And to still have this really, you know, kind of intimate connection with the land that we own, right? So he's doing this in our cow pastures. So where the cows used to go out and graze. And now, you know, he's finding a, a new use for that pasture, right? Using the resources that we already have there. And like I said, I think it's just such a great, you know, such a great exhibition of resilience. Um, and it's something that he's really into and takes up some of his time, which is very important too for retired farmers, if you know any of them. <laughs> so, so yeah, that it, it, and it doesn't need to be this whole big, I'm getting a whole new hobby and learning how to do something new. Um, but I think especially when we are talking about farmers that may no longer be farming and may be having a little bit of that identity crisis, um, showing them that a lot of the skills they have and a lot of the things they they liked about farming are transferable to, to other things as well, like syrup making, for example. Farmers, as we know, pick up skills over their lifetime like pretty much no other profession. They have plenty of skills when they're not farming. And I think part of it is just reminding them that they are most likely the plumber and the HVAC person and uh -huh. the equipment operator and all these other things that they do on the farm that they take for granted, that that's knowledge that they can use in a lot of different ways. Right. So that brings us exactly to another of the resiliency components that I think is especially relevant for farmers, which is about reconstructing your identity. Losing animals or losing land or losing the farm can, can hit really hard if that's your life's work and that's your identity 
especially if maybe it's your multi-generational, you know, my grandparents own this farm and then my parents and now me. And so what does it mean if I don't have animals or if I'm not farming? Am, am I still a farmer if I'm now working in town? And setting up and thinking through what is your identity and how do you reconstruct that in the face of this change? So some ways to facilitate doing that is to, to redefine, you know, kind of who you are now with your new, new identity and with your new skills. You facilitate that partially by defining the psychological family. So who are the people that you love and care about? Who's your close family? Your, your psychological family might not be the same as your physical family. So who are the people you connected to and how are those relationships changed by this change in your professional identity or by this change in your work? And, and some of them might not be changed and some of them might be changed. And there may be people who leave the psychological family or who join the psychological family as part of the restructuring of identity. And so like in Emily's example, this new identity of a, of a maple syrup maker as, as part of an identity that also brings with it a whole new set of relationships and a whole new set of connections and a whole new little pie slice of your identity about, about the maple syrup piece. Um, but I've heard Emily say many, many times, if you ask my father who he is, he would say he's a dairy farmer. That part of identity never goes away, but you kind of reconstruct who you are and how you view yourself in light of your new circumstances. Um, a final one that I'll, I'll discuss, which is a really fun one, is discovering hope. So discovering hope is, is rather future-oriented, and it's about learning to be comfortable that there's ambiguity, that there will always be ambiguity, and that you can have hope for a brighter future, even if the ambiguity never goes away, so that there can be good times and a positive future, even if you never let go of the ambiguity. Some of the ways to discover hope are, are um, think about what you can control and what you can't, to redefine what justice means. So most people have some sense of what it means to be in a just world. And if you can kind of rethink, well, what is justice now, now that I have this new knowledge, now that I have this new self-knowledge, how do I think about justice? One of my favorite is also to just have good humor about what has happened. So making jokes about um, where you are and the absurdity of the kinds of things that you are dealing with as part of your loss. So many people joke and laugh, you know, in, in what might be viewed as inappropriate ways, but those are really um, appropriate mechanisms for dealing with ambiguous grief that you can uh, learn to move forward and, and have some hope for the future when you recognize the absurdity of some of the losses that you have. I'm definitely guilty of that last one you said, the humor in a in potentially an inappropriate or what may be viewed as an inappropriate way. And I think my my family, it's it's definitely a family thing. It's part of the way we deal with something like that is humor. Uh, <laughs> that all of this is hitting hitting hard, to be honest. I'm looking back at my life and all the times that I've experienced these things as you guys are talking about. And it's uh it's much more often than I ever expected coming into today and learning about all of this because I, I had a general idea of what ambiguous loss is, but it's still so new. It's hard to mm -hmm. read about and find material that's specific, that, that's, that's relevant to, to my experience. This has been really helpful for me. I'll say that. I mean, this has been a nice little learning opportunity and I'm, I'm looking back at my life in all sorts of different spots where this has totally been what's been going on. We need to have like a future episode, like the Moose Room does group therapy about all of our <laughs> ambiguous loss. Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of topics on my end, so I'm I'm there. Right. Some of well, the forms of resiliency are most 
established by seeking some professional support and doing a lot of journaling to just designate like what exactly is lost, what kind of loss is this, and then how are relationships affected? Because the, the core element of loss is not so much the loss of money or of a thing, it's the loss of the people who you love and the loss of the way that you relate to them. And so when you can identify that, then it you may or may not be able to rebuild those relationships, but at least you can recognize and be clear about what's been lost. When I graduated vet school, I just spent four years of my life studying and doing nothing but school with these people, with these hundred people. And we knew each other way too well in a lot of cases. And then at graduation happened and all of us just boom, scattered across the country. And that, that feeling was really overwhelming. Right. That's that's, a classic ambiguous loss. It's like any kind of migration, you're leaving someone physically behind, but they're still psychologically part of your life. And those relationships get ruptured when someone's not physically with you, as much as you try to keep them psychologically present, you're not all together anymore. And so those relationships just get changed and get ruptured. Sorry if I'm derailing us a lot here, Emily, but no, you're learning, which I'm, I love. I'm, I'm learning. That's a great. That's a yeah. great. That's a great um, example. But I feel the same way about my graduate school friends. Yeah. And you know, I see them at. We have an annual conference, and there's a lot of people who I've now known for 20 to 30 years, and and you recognize that when you're not with them, there is a huge loss of relationship. That these are people you kind of came up with and that you've known for a long time. They yeah. know you, and no one else does. Yeah, and, and definitely in a different way. How, how does social media play into all this? Because I feel like it, it's a way to stay connected. But for me, uh, maybe it's because I didn't grow up with social media from, you know, it wasn't around until I was in college. So it feels like a, a fake connection in my, that's how, I don't know how else to explain it. It's not a real connection. It's not enough of a connection for me to feel like, I'm avoiding some of these things you're talking about, but does it play a role? Do people feel like they can connect enough to kind of help with these feelings? I would love to see some studies of social media with ambiguous loss. I have not seen one. That doesn't mean there aren't any, but there there could be. Um, I will certainly affirm what you're saying that social media, is. it's really hard to have a genuine relationship unless you are very careful about how who you're connecting with and how on social media. But a lot of social media is not super genuine, right? It's more like, look at my vacation and you know, here's my kid and here's, look at my new dog, right? That kind of stuff. And you don't really know what's going on with someone. So, I mean, it kind of keeps people psychologically present, but it also can be misleading. So it, it digs an even deeper hole into that psychological loss. I don't know that I have really much to add, but I want to reemphasize what you said, Jennifer, like social media, I see it more as, yeah, it's, it's a way to, Basically, it's people's virtual photo albums, right? So yeah, you see their vacations and their play their kids did at school and that. And and that stuff is all great. But are your social media friends the people you actually have true relationships with? Yeah, I, I don't really have a good answer to that, Joe. But I definitely think that there is some sort of relationship there. There is some research on social media that shows that people tend to feel worse the longer they've been on social media. So we think of like, oh, let's go on social media. I'll see all my old friends. I'll see what they're up to. But the truth is most people experience a mood depression after some time on social media. It's one more reason to take it off my phone, I guess. Right. <laughs> to spend less time with it, yeah. One, one more reason to get outside. Yeah, <laughs> right? yeah. So, so we talk a lot about that kind of thing when we're talking about, you know, you, know, you went through some of these 
mechanisms through which you build resilience. But that doesn't necessarily sound like an easy road to go down. When you're struggling to get down that road to building resilience, what do you what do you do? What what are where do you go? Who do you obviously lean on the people around you, but what else? Right. Well, I think start with leaning on the people around you. I also um, you know, going inward, what does this mean to me? Really defining meetings, creating what your relationships are, like understanding who are your important relationships, and then not being afraid to ask for guidance, right? So guidance from the people you know, but also guidance from professionals. They can um you know, mo most counseling professionals will have had some training in ambiguous loss um, and or clear loss. And so they should be able to talk with you about and move away from the physical loss to the ruptured relationship and start talking about what that means to have a ruptured relationship. And I would add to, I think, and well, this, this is influenced by, you know, my my own journey dealing with loss and everything else. And that is you know, like Jennifer said, looking inward, but also sitting and, and just be honest with yourself about what happened and, and what are you feeling? We call it naming and framing. Put a name on what happened. Was it loss? You know, what are you feeling? Is it grief? Is it confusion? And so that way you can kind of frame or, or build out what the situation really is. And, and I think that that again, for me personally has really worked because sometimes when we're in these really stressful or, or just dark places mentally, it can be easy to just avoid it because you don't want to confront it. And, and I think a first step is just going, I'm going to confront this and, and this is what I'm confronting. So, so that again, that naming piece is saying, this is what it is. And I think once we've learned to, to do that, to name those things, and then you know, sitting with that, like, okay, now, now it has a name and now I know what I'm dealing with. And again, I know for me personally, that is something that has really helped me get on that road towards building resilience of just stop pretending it doesn't exist. Ignoring it's not going to make it go away. So that brings me to the workbook that we put together. Um, it's the second edition. Pauline Boss had actually written a first edition back in 2000 in response to a farm crisis. And we updated it and, and added some different ways of thinking and some of Pauline's new work to it. One of the things that the workbook does, it's, you know, it gives some background on ambiguous loss and resilience, but also there are pages to fill in. And so you define like, what have I lost psychologically? What have I lost physically? What are the relationships that are related to this? Is any of my grief disenfranchised, right? Are people saying, oh, that's not important? Or am I frozen in any aspect of grief? Because I can't really grieve until I find out what's going to happen. I'm going to try this and I'm going to try that. And, and so what's frozen and, and just spelling out what the specifics are of what you've been going through can really help to move you out of a place of the depression of loss and into the place of dealing with it and creating some resiliency on navigating this long-term loss. This is kind yeah. of oddly similar to the discussion we had last week about honesty with yourself figuring out how to know yourself. And then I guess this is kind of the piece that we've been missing from that discussion, which is what does the new you look like and how does that affect everything around you? Which I think we, we didn't really get into last week when we were talking with Monica, but this, this makes a lot of sense as far as, okay, we've learned to be honest with ourselves, see what's happening in our lives. But then I like that this also incorporates looking forward as to, well, what does that mean and where are we going with it? We're having a very 
reflective mental health awareness month here on the moon's room and i think that that self-reflection piece is so important but we we have been yapping here for a while um and so i do want to mention that if you are interested in 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 the workbook that jennifer and i have been talking about or want to learn a little bit more about it i would encourage you to go to the extension website extension.umn.edu search for ambiguous loss and you'll find the information about uh, the workbook and we've also made a curriculum uh, to go with it as well so we will be having workshops on this in the future for farm families that may be interested or if you have just some more general questions or you're curious you can always reach out to me reach out to any of us on the moose room and we can get you connected to myself and jennifer and and we can chat more about this Jennifer, I want to thank you so much for coming on today. Thank uh, you for having me. I appreciate yeah. it. Yeah, it was really exciting to, to have you on and, and to show people that family social science is not a scary thing and certainly has a place uh, when we talk about agriculture and specifically farming and, and farm families. With that, we are going to wrap this episode in earnest. If you have any questions, comments, or scathing rebuttals, you can email those to themoosroom at umn.edu. That's T-H-E-M-O-O-S-R-O-O-M at umn.edu. If you have a question that you would like to ask on our voicemail and potentially have your question played live on a future episode of The Moose Room, you can call our voicemail at 612 624 3610. You can also find us on Twitter at UMN Newsroom and at UMN Farm Safety. That is all we have for you this week. Be well. Bye. Bye. Bye.